So this morning we continue on, uh, let me get myself completely situated here, we continue on in the study of Daniel. Uh, Pastor Vic last week uh, finished us up <clears throat> at the end of Daniel chapter 1, and so we'll be moving into Daniel chapter 2. So as a, as a reminder, uh, let's remember kind of where Daniel and his companions are at this point. So they've been taken out of their land, they've been put into the king's, uh, been selected to, be, to go into... Uh, three years of, of education, forced education, all these different things into the Babylonian Empire. Um, and they've been chosen to be before the king's court in front of Nebuchadnezzar. Each of them has been determined by um, Nebuchadnezzar to have, have come out ten times better. God has gifted them in everything that they have uh, studied Wisdom, intellect, all the different things. They've been given a gift to perform in front of the king in a way that obviously acknowledges the gift of God. And so we'll see how that plays out uh, throughout uh, chapter 2 here. And so today, like I said, we come to Daniel chapter 2. And we're going to be focusing on verses 1 through 24. That's a large section. Uh, we'll get through it, but we're not going to read all of it. Uh, to save some time, we're going to be focusing on uh, Daniel chapter 2, verses 1 through 3 in our reading, and then 19 through 24. So if you would, please stand for the honor of uh, reading God's word. And he says, Now in the second year of the reign of Nebuchadnezzar, Nebuchadnezzar had dreams, and his spirit was troubled, and his sleep left him. Then the king gave orders to call in the magicians, the conjurers, the sorcerers, sorry, and the Chaldeans to tell the king his dreams. So they came in and stood before the king. The king said to them, I had a dream and my spirit is anxious to understand the dream. And he goes forward back and forth here with Nebuchadnezzar going back and forth with his wise men. And we're going to pick it up in, uh, in verse 19. After all of this, after he's made several decrees, um, and we pick it up in verse 19 after Daniel has had the dream revealed to him. And he says, then the mystery was revealed to Daniel in a night vision. Then Daniel blessed the God of heaven. Daniel said, let the name of God be blessed forever and ever, for wisdom and power belong to him. It is he who changes the times and the epochs. He removes kings and establishes kings. He gives wisdom to wise men and knowledge to men of understanding. It is he who reveals the profound and hidden things. He knows what is in the darkness, and the light dwells with him. To you, O God, my fathers, I give my fa uh, God of my fathers, excuse me, I give thanks and praise, for you have given me wisdom and power. Even now you have made known to me which, what we requested of you, for you have made known to us the king's matter. Then Daniel went in to Arioch, whom the king had appointed to destroy the wise men of Babylon. He went and spoke to him as follows. Do not destroy the wise men of Babylon. Take me into the king's presence, and I will declare the interpretation to the king. Please be seated. <clears throat> so as a matter of history, just to go back and pick up just a little bit, Nebuchadnezzar was born in approximately 634 B.C., Nebuchadnezzar II was the son of a man named Nabopolassar, uh, was described as the liberator king of Babylonia after three centuries of Assyrian rule. 
And so after Nabopolassar died, around 605 B.C., Nebuchadnezzar defeated numerous rivals and grew Babylon to what we know now as a full-fledged empire. So for while studying, while studying this over the past few weeks, I learned uh, that Nebuchadnezzar, like many kings in, in history, was indeed an extremely arrogant king. And on each of the bricks used to build the massive city and the massive walls that we even have portions of today that archaeologists have found over the last hundred or so years, each of the bricks, mind you, each of the bricks has the inscription, I am Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon. A portion of this great wall's uh, most famous city entrance, which is called the Ishtar Gate, is on display in the Pergamum Museum in the... In the uh, in the museum, Pergamum Museum in Brit Berlin. Wow, that was hard. As a further example of Nebuchadnezzar, uh, Nebuchadnezzar's hope and where it was placed, we see the inscription carved into the Ishtar Gate. It's a long diatribe, but it basically says how Nebuchadnezzar was the pious prince, wise and untiring governor, who cared for Babylon, and then my personal favorite, humble. Uh, firstborn son of Nabopolassar, king of Babylon, I am. So this is, this is the Nebuchadnezzar that we're talking about. Right? This is the one that Daniel is appearing before, speaking to, uh, and, and bringing the word of the Lord to. And so we see in verses 1 through 3 here that God sent dreams to Nebuchadnezzar that were troubling to him. Now, we don't know whether they were multiple dreams or it was the same dream on multiple occasions, but whatever the case, God had given him these dreams. And in response, Nebuchadnezzar sought the only source of any sort of divine connection that he knew of. And so he brought in the magicians and the conjurers with the express intent from the beginning to have them tell him what the dream was. And we see that in verses uh, 2 and 3. Now, quick aside, Chaldean and Babylonian society regarded dreams as messages from the gods. And depending on how the dream or the omen um, was experienced, they interpreted it as coming from a light or a dark source. And as part of their method uh, of interpretation, they recorded dreams from people all over the, the country. And they correlated them into groupings based on what had happened to the dreamer's life after his dream. And these recordings were then used as documentation to assist the conjurers in subsequent dream interpretation. And we have some of those records in the form of stone tablets, some of which are on display in the British Museum today. Now, Nebuchadnezzar most likely knew the practices of the magicians and the conjurers with respect to their documentation of dreams. And Nebuchadnezzar was also an extremely intelligent and cunning individual. He was very wise. He was gifted with wisdom and strategy. Um, like I said before, he'd basically taken over multiple empires to bring together a massive one of his own. But we see this cunning uh, in Nebuchadnezzar at this point because he calls them in to not only interpret the dream that he's had, but in order to test them, he has them tell him what the dream is. He doesn't tell them to begin with. And he wants to know, seemingly, whether they have any connection to the gods or 
They're simply playing a game of statistics based off of what they think a dream might indicate based on records of previous dreams. And so we see in verse 4 here that the conjurers and the magicians uh, respond to him. It's an interesting note that at this point in the text, up until this point, it's been written in Hebrew. At this point, second half of chapter, or excuse me, verse 1 in, in uh, or excuse me, verse 4 in chapter 2, it switches over to Aramaic. Now, Aramaic was a language utilized uh, predominantly by the Assyrians, the Persians, and the Babylonians. And it stays in Aramaic in the original text all the way to the beginning of chapter 8, and then switches back to Hebrew. And we see that this seems to, to mesh with the focus of the Hebrew the Hebrews, Daniel and his companions in chapter 1, the focus on the Gentile nations in 2 through 7, and then moving on back to Israel in chapters 8 and following. And so we see in verse 4 that the Chaldeans, having referred to the king in their usual overly effusive manner, O king, live forever. They ask the king to tell them the dream, even though he has already called them in for them to tell him what the dream is. Now, the Chaldeans are attempting to do what they've always done, which is receive the dream, go to their texts, analyze the text, come back with some sort of analytical response, and tell the king what his, what his dream means. Nebuchadnezzar's having none of it, though. And here we see that regardless of his intellect, wisdom, and strategy, he is an evil man. And in verses 5 and 6, Nebuchadnezzar responds to them by telling them that his command is firm. Now, other translations in your Bible may have that his dream, some form of his dream has left him. Evidently in Aramaic, certainly not a scholar at all, uh, the phrase used can have two meanings. But whether God has decreed that Nebuchadnezzar, through Nebuchadnezzar, that the Chaldeans must not only interpret the dream, but must also know what the dream was in the beginning without having been told it, or because God gave Nebuchadnezzar the dream and then took the memory away of it in memory of it away in large part the point is is that God is setting up a situation where Daniel and his companions will be shown to be servants of the living holy and sovereign God Nebuchadnezzar then declares two scenarios judgment and reward if they do not tell him his dream and its interpretation he will have them torn limb from limb. And knowing history, this is exactly what Nebuchadnezzar planned to do. He was a man of his word in this regard. And not only that, but they would have their homes destroyed, meaning he will go after their families as well. However, if they do as, he's, as, as he asks, he will reward them with gifts, great honor, uh, which many historians tell us that these groups of people, the Chaldeans and the conjurers and the magicians, love to do. They love their honor, and they love to go around interpreting dreams and telling futures and doing all different things in order to receive money. Now, this is not unlike the modern-day version of Chaldeans that we see today in both the inside and outside of Christian circles, chasing money and honor rather than the glory of the Lord. And so in verse 7, they come back at him again, and they say, they ask for the dream one more time, as if this round of questioning will somehow change his mind. 
so that they can come back with interpretation and maintain their lives. In verse 8, Nebuchadnezzar responds with some shrewdness here, and he calls them out for buying time. He's basically saying, you're wasting time. You're looking for me to change my mind after you drag it on and on and on. Again, he's having none of it. And the problem is that they are buying time because they have no real power other than sleight of hand and tricks. And in verse 9 here, we see that Nebuchadnezzar then rightly identifies them for who they are. Willful, knowing liars. And so we read in verse 9 here. For you have agreed together to speak lying and corrupt words before me until the situation is changed. Therefore, tell me the dream that I may know that you can declare to me its interpretation. And so in verse 10, the Chaldeans make a profound and accurate statement. So far, the only one that they got right. And, he sa- and they say, the Chaldeans answered the king and said, there is not a man on earth who could declare the matter for the king inasmuch as no great king or ruler has ever asked anything like this of any magician, conjurer, or Chaldean. Moreover, the thing which the king demands is difficult, and there is no one else who could declare it to the king except God's, whose dwelling place is not with mortal flesh. And we see here that the Chaldeans get it right. Not all the way right, because they're not declaring the glory of the one true God. But they get it right. They understand that what Nebuchadnezzar is asking is not possible with mankind. And that's one of the underlying things that we want to get out of this text. God and God alone holds this kind of power. So this is one of the things that is an underlying point for the entirety of this text. Is that God and God alone is sovereign over the affairs of man. And there is no man who operates in this realm of power. Now, as an aside, let's talk about dreams in the Bible to begin with. What are they? How are they, how are they done? What does God do with dreams? And the interesting thing, lest we think that God utilizes dreams in Scripture all throughout in many, many occasions, let's do some examination. There are 21 examples of, God give, of God-given dreams recorded in Scripture. Ten in the book of Genesis, one in Judges, one in 1 Kings, three in Daniel, and six in the book of Matthew. That's it. A couple of examples, Genesis 37. Joseph dreams two separate dreams, indicating that his family will one day bow down to him. It's a prophetic dream of things to come. In Genesis 41, Pharaoh dreams of the famine, as well as the follow-on abundance, to come in Egypt, giving Joseph the opportunity to interpret that dream which is a story with significant parallel to this story in Daniel. In the six dreams recorded in Matthew, we see all of them are instructions to protect Jesus during and after and shortly after the time of his birth uh, from harm, as well as the one to Pilate's wife warning him off uh, of persecuting Jesus. And so the purpose of dreams was to reveal to God's servants truth that he had desired to communicate in the form of things to come or instructions for the present. Now keep in mind that scripture records just 21 dreams over the course of approximately 1900 years from the time of Moses up until Jesus' birth. 
It's important to note that dreams were rarely utilized by God and as a form, almost always, as a form of warning or revelation. Dreams are something that we in the modern age are still researching. We don't understand everything. We all dream every single night. We know that dreams are necessary for quality sleep. We know that occurrences of everyday life make it into our dreams. We know that things affect our dreams like food and drink, health and medications. Anybody, military guys, ever had a doxy or a meth dream? It's an anti-malarial thing. It gives you wicked, crazy dreams. Our minds work constantly processing whatever it is that's happening in our lives that day. So we know that just because we have a dream, that in no way indicates that anything supernatural is going on. Dreams are a natural part of our life. I recall when I was in college, uh, in engineering school, working on numerous times really difficult solutions, and I would eventually go to bed without reaching the solution, only to get up in the morning and know exactly what I was supposed to do. Now, did I receive some sort of special revelation from God? No, of course not. Or was it that my mind chewed on it all night long and eventually came to the solution and it just sort of came to my conscious mind when I got up in the next morning? Of course. Now, these are not the dreams that we're talking about here. We're not talking about these types of dreams. Really that are based in human intellect or wisdom or things of that nature. In each of the cases... Biblically, the recipient knew for a fact that these, God, these dreams were given by God or if they were given to an enemy of God, they were so troubled by them that they ended up seeking interpretation from the servant of God. So do God-given dreams still happen? Can God utilize a dream to accomplish his purpose in some fashion? Of course he can. His power is not diminished. However, does God provide a new word? Does he provide a new revelation or a fresh revelation or a new truth? No. Scripture teaches us in Hebrews chapter 1 and Philippians 2 and elsewhere that Christ is the complete revelation of truth. We need no other revelation. 2 Timothy 3 tells us that through the word of God, he has equipped us as followers to be adequate for every good work. We lack nothing. We are equipped by the word of God. Now, if someone declares to you that they have a new word from God based in a dream, you know they're not coming from the word of God. He has delivered his full and final word. We are not to be seeking new revelation when he has already given us the completed version in Christ and here in his word. And so back to our passage here. We, we move on to chapter, or excuse me, to verses 12 and 13. And we see that we shouldn't be surprised here that the king who is evil and is about to come under the judgment of God acts in an evil way. Due to the conjurer's inability to perform the task given them by the king, he now knows they're frauds. And so he orders the execution of all of the wise men of Babylon. Now this, of course, includes Daniel, Hananiah, Azariah, and Mishael, though they had just barely completed their training. And so we'll, we'll jump back in here in verse 14. 
And after Daniel learns of this decree, we see that Daniel replied with discretion and discernment to Arioch. That's an important point. Vic brought it up last week. He didn't run around stomping his feet. He didn't run around scared, uh, you know, yelling and screaming. He didn't run around demanding. He responded with discretion and discernment to Arioch, the captain of the king's bodyguard, who had gone forth to slay the wise men of Babylon. Now let's paint the picture here. Daniel has been taken from his homeland forcibly. He's been told to eat foods. He's, not in, he's in, been instructed not to eat. He's forcibly educated in the ways that are completely antithetical to his God. He's a slave of a foreign godless nation and king and has had everything taken away from him. He is a slave. Now, though through no fault of their own, Daniel and the others have now been included into a list of those in the kingdom who will be executed for being and doing what Daniel and his companions are not and have not done. Now, if we're thinking in human terms, Daniel has every right to fear, despair, complain, be indignant, be angry, and doubt God. Every right from a human standpoint. He's done everything right up to this point. He has been a servant of God. But he doesn't. Look at his response in uh, 14 through 16. So we read the first, first uh, verse, in, start in 15 again. He said to Arioch, the king's commander, for what reason is the decree from the king so urgent? Then Arioch informed Daniel about the matter. So Daniel went in and requested of the king that he would give him time in order that he might declare their interpretation to the king. Now Daniel, who, let's remind ourselves here, is, is an older teenager, maybe sneaking into his early 20s at this point, responds with discretion, and he engages the chief bodyguard. When Daniel finds out the, the decree, he marches into the king and requests, not demands, as Vic talked about last week, to give him time. Now, this is the one thing that Nebuchadnezzar refused to give the other so-called wise men. We don't know why he granted Daniel's request. It doesn't say. Was it an act of God? Or did Nebuchadnezzar remember that he deemed them ten times better than all of his other wise men and so decided to give him an opportunity? Either way, we know that he grants Daniel's request. Otherwise, obviously, he'd be dead because the decree has gone out. And so we get into verse 17 here, and, he, and, and we see that Daniel goes back to his friends and tells them what's going on. He provides them this information. Now, why does he provide them this information? Is it so they can strategize, so they could commiserate, uh, depend on their own wisdom, name their desired outcome, and take dominion over their, their situation? No, not at all. He related the information to them, as Scripture says, so that... They might seek compassion from the God of heaven, which is a distinctly Hebrew term for God, God of heaven, regarding this mystery. Recall that in Daniel, or that, that Daniel in chapter 1, verse 17, is said to have received from God the ability to understand visions and dreams. Yet he still seeks from God the ability to reveal this mystery. 
We see in verses 19 and 20 and following that Daniel now gives praise to God after having received the understanding of both the dream and its interpretation. He gives praise to God for revealing this mystery. Now notice what he does not say. He does not say, I have exercised my great gift that we see in chapter 1 that he, that he has. And as a result, everyone needs to listen to me. Now next week, we're going to see how even before the king, he does not take credit for this in any way. He glorifies God alone, repeatedly as a matter of fact. And this brings us really to our first takeaway for today's, for today's time. Wisdom and revelation of any and every kind, in this case, dream interpretation, belong to God and God alone. We see this over and over in Scripture. That the wisdom of man is meaningless and of no lasting worth. Now, that's not to say that man has no knowledge. We, of course, do. Man has achieved much knowledge, and we have accomplished many, many things over hundreds and thousands of years. We have, over the centuries, learned many things. Some of it due directly to Nebuchadnezzar and the Babylonians in the way of art and science and mathematics. But God says of those who would say that there is no God, you're a fool. Even amidst all of their accomplishments, they are still fools. And we see here in the middle of what would be a, an understatement to call a bad situation, Daniel goes to the source of all wisdom and power and knowledge to reveal to him what the king's dream is as well as its interpretation. And so we move on in verse 21 here, and he says, It is he who changes the times and the epochs. He removes kings and establishes kings. He gives wisdom to wise men and knowledge to men of understanding. It is he who reveals the profound and hidden things. He knows what is in the darkness, and the light dwells with him. And we see in the interpretation of the dream next week that no god, or excuse me, no king rises or falls outside the sovereign hand of God. Now this does not simply apply to good leaders or good kings. It applies to all kings. As a reminder, verse 2 of chapter 1, the Lord gave Judah, his own people, gave Judah into the hand of Nebuchadnezzar. Nebuchadnezzar did not do this of his own accord. The Lord gave Judah. Israel was by the hand of God a slave under the rule of Nebuchadnezzar and the Babylonians. Now this brings us to our second takeaway. God is sovereign over the affairs of man. Nothing happens outside his all-powerful hand. Even today in the wake of what took place in Texas this week, or what is reported to be hundreds and hundreds of sexual assaults and cover-ups and lack of accountability in the SBC, spanning decades, many have asked, where is God? And by way of reminder, I would point you to the newsletter this week um, to see Redeemer's response to that report. 
So with respect to the question asked by many in the midst of the terrible situation, where is God? That same question could be asked by Daniel and his companions. They'd done everything right up to this point. They weren't perfect people, but they were servants of God walking with him. And what we need to understand is that whether it's something God causes or allows, he has a purpose for it. But I don't mean the version of that statement that's a hollow platitude that we say to people when we don't really know what else to say. I mean what Scripture tells us. That a holy, righteous, all-powerful God can and does affect the working out of this universe such that it conforms to his will and plan for all of history. Church, that's something we can rest on. That's something that we can fall on on our worst day. We don't go lower than that. We need to understand that I am not the center and end purpose of what's happening to me and going on in my life. God is. It isn't about me. It's about him. Many times we see in Scripture in our own lives that God exercises his sovereignty for blessing. Hallelujah. For me, the greatest example of that is his sovereignty in the crucifixion. Hebrews chapter 1 verse 3 says of Christ, and he is the radiance of his glory and the exact representation of his nature and upholds all things by the word of his power. Now, several weeks ago, Vic preached on uh, the events leading up to and including the crucifixion uh, in, in the book of Luke. And he made a small statement that Jesus didn't break the bonds as they carried him away, even though he could have. Since then, a thought has plagued me. I can't get it out of my head. It's caused me sorrow for my sin, but it's also resulted in great worship. Do we understand, church, that on the night of his arrest, the torches and swords the people carried were held together by the word of his power? The bindings used, the whips and scourges, the crown of thorns, the saliva that was spit on him, all held together by the word of his power. The nails in his hands and feet, the spear used to pierce his side, the wood for the cross itself, all held together by the word of his power. The people who would mock and accuse him and harm him in every way held together by the word of his power. Church, we do not serve a pacifistic God who sits on the sidelines and simply responds to history unfolding before him. We serve the almighty king of the universe who on that day went to war in order to accomplish the plan of God, which scripture tells us was put into motion before the world even began. And that war meant that he would allow the very people and things that he held together by the word of his power to beat, mock, accuse him, and eventually crucify him while he remained silent. And did not use that very word of his power to immediately disintegrate them all for the sin they committed. 
He did that to accomplish the sovereign will of God. Praise be to God for him. And what we have to understand, though, is the adi- in addition to blessing that God gives, sometimes God's purpose is judgment. Sometimes it's the cleansing of the house of God. It may be maturity that only comes through hardship and pain. But are you saying that God utilized an evil king of an evil nation to do his bidding regarding world history and the nation of Israel? Yes, absolutely. This is exactly what happened as well with Jesus' crucifixion. God utilized Pilate and the Romans to accomplish what Jesus' plan and purpose was on this earth. And on that day, the worst thing, the greatest evil imaginable was done to the holy righteous king to accomplish God's will. Now, with regard to Nebuchadnezzar, are we saying that he turned around and judged the very king and the nation by giving them over to the next empire? We'll see that in the coming weeks in Daniel. God is sovereign sovereign over all. Now, you may ask, does that make my own choices somehow irrelevant, his sovereignty? No, Scripture also tells us that our choices are very real, as Vic has, has talked about many times are very real and are very much our own for which we will one day be held accountable. Now, can I tell you how both of those things perfectly work together? No, I can't. As Vic has explained many times before, the full depth of that sort of an answer uh, is a mystery to us. We understand in part now. But we only know that throughout Scripture, God teaches that both are true. And so we see in verse 23... The final takeaway for today. Daniel praises God because God is the source of all wisdom and because he is sovereign. Since both are true, our hope necessarily has to be in him alone. If there is any true wisdom outside that of God, or if there is anything or anyone functioning outside the sovereignty of God, then our hope is at best a fairly strong maybe. If he is not completely sovereign, then there is no guarantee that my salvation is sure. That Christ's atonement on the cross is sufficient. And that my arrival in heaven is anything other than a statistical chance. But God has not said that. He said anything but that. The testimony of God throughout his word is that he is master and king and will exert his will in the way and the time frame of his good pleasure. He says in Isaiah chapter 40, 13 through 15, who has directed the spirit of the Lord or as his counselor has informed him? With whom did he consult and who gave him understanding and who taught him in the path of justice and taught him knowledge? And informed him on the way of understanding. Behold, the nations are like a drop from a bucket. Or regarding our salvation in John 6, 37 through 40. All that the Father gives me will come to me. And the one who comes to me I will certainly not cast out. For I have come down from heaven not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. 
This is the will of him who sent me, that all that he has given me, I lose nothing, but raise it up on the last day. For this is the will of my Father, that everyone who beholds the Son and believes in him will have eternal life, and I myself will raise him up on the last day. And finally, one of my favorite passages in all of Scripture, Revelation 22, 12, and 13. Behold, I am coming quickly, and my reward is with me to render to every man according to what he has done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the first and the last, the beginning and the end. Only a God who possesses all wisdom is sovereign over everything, and is the only object of our hope can say this and not be a liar. So in closing, we see that the life of Daniel thus far, has an, he expresses a knowledge of the source of all wisdom, the fact that God is so sovereign over all and in all, and that because of the truth of those two statements, our hope can lie in nothing and no one else other than God and God alone. Church, we must join Daniel in praising God for these things and end our hope in human wisdom, human power, human achievements to include our own. And we need to give up the concern that evil men drive history and somehow operate outside the sovereignty of God. We serve the one who created all, sustains all, and will one day bring all to a conclusion in his timing. We look forward to seeing his face, at which time he will complete the work of salvation that he has sovereignly begun in us. Let's pray. No prayer that I could pray that would give honor and glory sufficiently uh, to God for his sovereignty and his wisdom. And so I'll just read 1 Timothy 6, 13 through 16. I charge you in the presence of God who gives life to all things and of Christ Jesus who testified the good confession before Pontius Pilate that you keep the commandment without stain or reproach until the appearing of our Lord Jesus Christ which he will bring about at the proper time. He who is blessed and only sovereign, the King of kings and Lord of lords, who alone possesses immortality and dwells in unapproachable light, whom no man has seen or can see, to him be glory and honor and eternal dominion. Amen.